The fullness of Christ's incarnation and humiliation from Hebrews 2 and Philippians 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this blessed evening where we might come and study your word together. We might reflect on the greatness that is Christ and his incarnation. Lord, give us wisdom, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Martin Luther once said that we are all called theologians just as we are all called Christians. Now, it might seem odd to refer to yourself as a theologian because when you think of a theologian, you might think, Wingback armchair, full beard and mustache, smoking a pipe, or something like that. But theology quite literally means a word about God, or words about God. Coming from the two Greek words, theo, meaning of God, and logos, meaning word. So if we speak a word about God, or think a word about God, or write a word about God, we're a theologian, even if we don't do that for a living. If you ask a young child who made you, and their answer is God, They're being a theologian. They're speaking a word about God. That's why sometimes we might call our children young theologians or little theologians. And if they say that God created them, they're not just doing theology, they're actually doing good theology because they're speaking something that's true. Because not all words about God that we think and that we speak and that we write are necessarily true. And we have to be very careful We have to actually figure out and say and think words about God that are actually true to who he is and true to what he's revealed to us in his word. It's vitally important, especially at this time of Christmas, to speak true words of God, especially when we talk about Jesus, who is fully God and fully man and how that all works. We know that he's fully God and fully man. That's something we say over and over again. and We sometimes forget why that's necessary and why he's both. But the beauty of our faith is that we can learn and find help in the theologians, the Christians that have come before us. And so tonight we're referencing over and over a man named Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus, who lived in the 4th century. And we have a letter preserved from him that he wrote to a fellow Christian, a man named Nectarius, who was becoming the bishop of Constantinople after Gregory. And in this letter, Gregory explains to to Nectarius, here are all the bad words about God you might hear from the people around you, and here's how you have to be careful. Here's what you actually should think about God. Here's what the scriptures actually say about God. Because at the time when Gregory was writing, there were all sorts of questions about who Jesus Christ was. He was human, yes, but how much of him was actually human? 
Did he have a human body, or did he just really seem to have one, but he really didn't? Did he have a human soul, or did he really not? Or especially what Gregory addresses in his letter is the heresy of Apollinarianism, which is that, yes, Christ had a body and Christ had a soul, but he didn't really have a human mind. He certainly just had a divine mind. And you might wonder why we're talking about this 4th century controversy in this letter, and I promise you it's relevant, so stay with me as we start to dig in. One of the things we say, as I've said before, is that God is fully man, or Jesus is fully man and fully God. That's something the scriptures teach, but there's no verse that says that directly. And so the early church started to recognize what the, what the scriptures actually said, and they had to actually talk about it and think about it. And so it's helpful to go back to those times and see how they were dealing with things. It's a good reason that Gregory speaks the way he does. He gets his words from scripture, especially passages like Hebrews 2 and Philippians 2 that we spoke tonight. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 2 because we'll be in that passage, verses 14 through 18, a good bit this evening. Gregory sums up his letter in this phrase. He says, What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Now, assumed here isn't like an assumption that you make in your head when you meet somebody and you're trying to think, are they a good person or not, right? It's not that kind of assumption. Rather, it's assumption and assume like taking on something. If you assume a burden, it means you've now carried it. You've now taken it on yourself. And so what Gregory is saying is, what Christ hasn't taken on himself in regards to his humanity, he hasn't healed. We'll see why that's really important. And again, Gregory is using scripture to understand. He's not coming up with this theology on his own, just speaking a word about God that he hopes to be true. He's going to where God has revealed himself namely his word. Listen to what Hebrews 2, 14 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The idea if Christ was to come and share in flesh and blood in order to destroy the devil and destroy death, he had to share in flesh and blood. Flesh and blood here is a stand-in for all of humanity. When it says, or all of humanness, excuse me. When it says elsewhere in the Bible that the Word became flesh, Gregory points out that that's a synecdoche. It's the, the part is representing the whole. To say flesh doesn't mean just a human body, but it's everything that it means to be human. He says, for example, in Acts chapter 7, 14, it talks about the souls that went down to Egypt. And the Greek word is just souls, not bodies. But he's saying nobody would think that it's just souls going down to Egypt and not bodies. It's a part representing the whole. So in the same way, when it says Christ took on flesh, or he took on flesh and blood, it's the whole of humanity. Now, why did he have to do that? Look with me at verse 14, and I'm going to read through 15 in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's where you and I come in. In order for Christ to actually do this, to defeat the devil and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, he had to put on flesh and blood. Because let's face it, there are many problems we face in this life, but one of those that looms is death. And without Christ, death and separation from God. And Hebrews 2 goes on to clarify what it means that he took on flesh and blood. As if we didn't have enough clarification already, it goes on. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us in every respect. That's not leaving anything out. That's not, well, yes, a body, but not a mind, or yes, a mind, but not a body. It's pretty clear, in every respect. And it says in verse 17, he had to do that so that he could be both a faithful high priest and the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation that we needed. You see, if Jesus didn't experience the fullness of what it means to be human, he can't fully represent us as a high priest. There will be times then, if he's not fully human, that we might have experiences that we say, well, he didn't have because he didn't have a human mind or he didn't have a human body. No, in order for him to be a faithful high priest perfectly, he had to have the fullness of humanity. And if Jesus isn't fully human, because sin came in the world through men, through Adam and Eve, a man has to pay the price. And if he's not a perfect man, then how can he perfectly pay the price for sin? You see how the logic goes. Look also at verse 18 says, it goes on, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But if he didn't suffer as, a, as fully human, you might say, well, he can help us a little bit, but we can't really help us. He can't experience the fullness of our temptation. And Hebrews is saying, no, no, no. He partook in everything, flesh and blood, in every respect like us, so he could help us. He could be a faithful high priest in our perfect atoning sacrifice. There's some terminology that we have now that Gregory wouldn't have used back in the day, but based on his letters and his writings, he certainly would agree with. And that's this, that our depravity is total, that evil is comprehensive and sin is comprehensive in us. Not that we're as evil as we could be, not that we're only evil through and through, but rather evil and sin touches every aspect of who we are. It affects every aspect of us. It's like a white shirt that goes through the colored laundry and becomes tinted all over with a different color. All of us is tainted by sin. And so, in effect, Christ had to, as it were, put on and wash the fullness that is the shirt of humanity for us. He couldn't leave any of it left undone. Because if he did, if he did leave something undone, then we'd still, on some level, be bound for death and dead in our sin we would still have this great need. And in fact, if that's the case, Gregory says, we'd be even worse off than before because we have this idea that we have help, but we don't actually have all the help we need. I'm sure many of you understand this. Sometimes somebody helping you halfway is worse than them helping you at all. Imagine if you were moving cross-country and the movers packed up all the things at your house and dropped them on the side of the road halfway. That would be worse right, than them actually not having picked up anything at all. Or think about the old saying, what's worse than finding a worm in your apple? It's finding half a worm in your apple, right? That's the idea here. If the chasm between God and man is an infinite chasm, and Christ only gets us part of the way, we still have an infinite chasm. That's the idea. Gregory explains it like this. If your foot and your eye are both injured, you can't just care for the foot, Right? And expect the eye to get better. You need to bring healing to both of those things. He writes it like this. He says, If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of humanity. 
We used that earlier in our liturgy. The idea is that Jesus didn't just look like a human. He didn't just have bones and nerves, which he did have, but he also had a human mind. He understands the fullness of what it means to be human. Nothing was left out. Gregory says the whole of nature has fallen in Adam. Therefore, Christ must take on the whole of human nature in himself in order for us to have a true and complete salvation. That's the idea. Now, it seems clear to us, yes, we we say it all the time, Christ is fully God and, and fully man. But what does that mean for us today? What does a type of modern day Apollinarianism look like? Well, back then, it was people making statements about Christ that affected what we think about human beings. Well, Christ didn't have a human mind, so therefore, we're okay in our human mind. But actually, today, as we kind of saw last week, it's much the opposite. We make statements about what it means to be human, and that affects what we actually believe about the incarnation and all of what Christ assumed in his humanity. Sometimes we often make a distinction between the parts of what it means to be human, body and mind, those sorts of things. It's what uh, Nancy Piercy calls two-story thinking in her book, uh, Love Thy Body, a very excellent book. I highly recommend it to you. She says we often make divisions, story divisions between different things, between uh, the sacred and the secular, between the mind and the body, between uh, theology and science, between, to use last week's terms, the who-ness of man and the what-ness of man. Yet when we do this two-story thinking, we often set up one story as more powerful than the other and affecting the other. Think about it this way. If I think I am something, I'm going to use the mere tool of my body to determine that, rather than looking at body and mind together to understand how God has made us. There are many ways this works itself out in our world. Somebody can be a human, but can they be a person? Right? That's two-story thinking at work, Right? What I think about myself and what I do with my body are two separate things. That's two-story thinking at work. And yet, as we know, and as we know well, sin is not just sin in the body. We don't just sin with our bodies, but we also sin with our minds. It happens in the same way. It's both body and mind. And often, I don't know if your experience is anything like mine. I believe it is. Sin often begins in the mind and flows out to the body. But we often assume that if we could just get our minds right, mind over matter, things would work out. If I just think the right things, if I just reason through this enough, if I just will things hard enough, I can make it happen. And yet, sin so often begins not in our bodies physically, but in in our minds and in our thinking. This is what Gregory says about this. He needed mind, that is Christ, for the sake of mind which not only fell in Adam, but was the first to be affected, as doctors say, of illness. For that which received the command, the command here he's talking about is the command that Adam was given by God, not to eat. For that which received the command was that which failed to keep the command. And that which failed to keep it was also that which dared to transgress. And that which transgressed was also that which stood most in need of salvation. And that which needed salvation was that which also he took upon him. Therefore mine was taken upon him saying that the sin of Adam is not just in the mere action or inaction, as the case may be, but actually in his mind, right? It starts there, it begins there. Sin has so touched us that it's not just our physical bodies that need healing, but it is our minds as well. And therefore, Christ had to take on both body and mind, complete humanity. As we read in our confession of sin, if we reject Christ as having a human mind, 
then there's an excuse for us who sin with the mind. And yet, as Romans says, you and I are without excuse. So we need a fully human Savior, body and mind. We need both of those things together. And Gregory sums it all up in the quote I said before, that what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. And that's why it's so important the way we talk about Christ. Fully God and fully man. Now when when Gregory says what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed, he uses a double negative, and sometimes that's hard to understand. But let me say it another way. Therefore, what Christ has assumed, what Christ has taken on, is that which he has healed. And because Christ has taken on the fullness of what it means to be human, full and complete humanity, therefore there's a fullness to our salvation. Nothing is left hanging, as it were. Let me read once again these words from Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this comes the key point of application, is that because Christ has taken on the fullness of humanity, he can help us. He can help us in the temptations that we face daily, in our incorrect reasoning in our minds, in the times that we do things we ought not to do. In the fullness of our sin, we have a fuller Savior in Christ. And so we can look to him for resource, for help, and also for worship in our time of need. I'm actually reminded, believe it or not, of the Greek hero Achilles for various reasons tonight. If you know the story of Achilles, he was born as a man, but then was dipped into the river Styx to become semi-divine. But if you know the story, his ankle was left out, right? Or, sorry, his heel, excuse me, was left out, right? And that ended up being his downfall. He was a great and mighty warrior. He fought many battles. He won a lot of glory for himself. But ultimately, he had this weakness, and it was his downfall. We see in many ways, I think, the exact opposite of this figure in Christ. Who was not man become God, but was God become man. And he wasn't missing anything. It wasn't even like just a little bit of heel he was missing. No, he became fully man. And indeed, he went to his death on purpose to save all those who might believe in him and have faith in him. There is no chink in his armor, as it were. There's no hole in the breastplate of Christ's righteousness that is for us. Because he has taken on the fullness of what it means to be human. Since he was made like us in every respect, we have a full and complete salvation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what we enjoy at Christmas. The knowledge that Christ has come and identified with us to the fact of taking on the fullness of what it means to be human. And yet it's also something we look forward to because we know that Christ is still fully human. He has a new, glorified, resurrected physical body And will one day come, and our bodies will also be raised. And so we can think about this, that the fullness of our humanity doesn't just go away, but actually becomes even greater in the new heavens, the new earth, where righteousness dwells, when we're resurrected. And so it's helpful to look back at words like Gregory's to think, what does it mean that what Christ has not assumed he has not healed? And to understand that actually we have everything we need in Christ. There was nothing that was left out of his human nature. He became fully human for us and for our salvation. And because of that, we say with the angels at his birth, hallelujah, glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Father, often we are floored by the things that you do that we often don't understand. But Lord, I thank you that you've given us your words so we might understand what you've done for us.
especially so in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came to earth for us. Thank you for the fullness of his humanity for us, that we might identify with him, that he might understand us in sufferings, that he might provide help for us. Lord, would you help us this Christmas season to reflect on that good news, to reflect that the fullness of what we need is found in him, not in the many places that we so often look for it. Help us also to understand the fullness that we need, Lord, that we sin in body and also in mind, and that we need you fully and completely. Would you continue to move our hearts toward you by your spirit for your glory. It's in the name of our Savior Jesus we pray. Amen.